This week on Up in the Blue Seats, we look back to my 78-79 Rangers team that went to the Stanley Cup Finals. My old teammate Pat Hickey joins the show to talk about the team and his hockey in Harlem program. Also, the author of Thin Ice, A Season in Hell with the New York Rangers, Larry Sloman, joins me to talk about the book. All that and more next on Up in the Blue Seats from the New York Post. that you direct your attention to center ice for a special presentation. Welcome to the Up in the Blue Seats podcast, a New York Rangers podcast with the New York Post. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. If you're using Apple, rate the show five stars and write a nice review, please. New episodes are released Wednesday afternoons. Ron is joined this week by his former teammate, Pat Hickey, and the author of the Thin Ice book, Larry Sloman, a.k.a. Ratso. Now, here he is, the man who once heard Dukes looks like a lady from the fans in Philly, Ron Dugay. Welcome, everyone. So, yes, we have some good news this week. The Rangers are back on the ice, and so are a lot of teams back on the ice. But it's a program which is phase two. Players are in groups of six, one day on, one day off which is good news. Just knowing that they're back on the ice and preparing and getting ready for whatever is going to happen in the future, which we anticipate sometime in middle July, they're going to have full training camp. And hopefully by August 1st, the season will start. Yes, everyone, hopefully the season will start. But today we go back in time. We go back to a special year for me anyways, as a New York Ranger 78-79, the season where uh, I had uh, so much fun, where this team grew into a team, a lot of character, a lot of fun players, including J.D. Pat Hickey, Donnie Murdoch, Dave Maloney, Ron Grester. We go to the Stanley Cup Finals. Pat Hickey was very much part of that team. He'll be on the show today. Also on the show, Larry Sloman. Larry followed the team at the beginnings or the end of that season where we went to the Stanley Cup Finals to the following season. He wrote a book. He documented everything in a book called Thin Ice, A Season in Hell. So a lot to talk about, a lot of good stories. So stay tuned, stay with us as we talk to both of them. My guest today is a former NHL player of 10 seasons, drafted in the second round by the New York Rangers, in which he played six seasons with a 40-goal season and was part of the 1979 run to the Cup Finals. But more importantly, he was part of the Ranger band that recorded Hockey Sock Rock. Welcome, my friend, Pat Hickey. Hey, Duke. I'm very excited to be here. It's hard to catch me, but you're the only guy that can catch me to get on something like this. Like, let's have some fun. Okay, well... When you say catch you, where are you right now? Yeah, I'm up in uh, North Toronto. It's uh, an area called Muskoka, Huntsville, Ontario, on a cottage on a lake, which was uh, something that I purchased with my first NHL dollar, or should I say WHA dollar, so that I could uh, help my dad and mom retire, plus uh, not have to go camping in uh, in uh, provincial parks, which are all outlawed right now. <laughs> but uh, we've been building this, my wife and uh, my three children, we've been building this for the last you know, 39 years. So this is our summer 
summer uh, home. That's where I am. Okay, so part of the show today, because hockey's on pause, is going back in time. And for us as New York Rangers, we had a lot of fun times. We went through a lot, especially you and I, because you were there at the beginning when I got there in 77. You were uh, you were very comfortable being a New York Ranger, New York lifestyle. So there's a lot to talk about, especially the season of 79 on that cup run. And so today we're going to bring in, later we're going to bring in Larry Sloman, Ratso. We recorded that with his book, uh, Thin Ice, Season of Hell. What do you recall about 79 and what it meant to you, having been there a couple of years, and now we find ourselves on a good team going to the finals? Yeah, well, that was a, a culmination of a lot of things. I went there in 75. You have to understand that Emil Francis sold me on coming to New York out of two years of successful WHA performance with, with a very stable franchise in the Toronto Toros. For the, uh, you know, the 12-man sort of stability that they had in the power play with Brad Park, Jean Rattel, Roger Bear, uh, you know all the you know all the names. Uh, Wayne Dillon and I came in, and uh, coming to New York, uh, everyone thought Dillon and I were like brothers, but we weren't. We were both individuals, and uh, within uh, about twelve or eighteen games, uh, the Rangers in front office fired the coach and uh, Mr. Stewart, and they traded for the big trade with Brady uh, and uh, Brad Park and um, with Vadne and Esposito. What that was for me, Ronnie, back in '75, that was so in a way refreshing i had to i saw everybody everybody crying around me it wasn't it wasn't part of my upbringing or my tradition with the team because i hadn't grown with them i was sort of brand new so i just stayed off to the side and i let things grow and that january they fired francis emil francis who was a great guy and john ferguson came in and that was the beginning of uh meeting my new friends like mike McEwen and Mario Merwa and Lucien Deblois and Ron Duguay coming in as draft picks over the 76, 77, 78. So I was sort of one of the guys that was there that kind of built that uh, culture in the locker room and uh, in the city because I was the only guy that lived in the city back in those days. So uh, and, and I invited it and Sonny Werblin came in and you've, I've heard you tell stories about Sonny Werblin. He promoted it, but I guess the, mo- the person that mostly promoted it was my mother. Growing up here in Ontario and all this dream about becoming a professional hockey player, she never had it, but she was an artist and she studied in New York. And one thing she said when I got drafted by the Rangers, she got excited and said, go there, you know, and live a 16-hour day and do your work and go to the galleries and all those types of things. And uh, I think I might have told you that story before. By November of the first year, I used to phone her up and say, Mom, things are going good, but uh, I'm not living that 16-hour day. I'm living that 22-hour a day. Is that okay? <laughs> so, you know, I was. We all took it in. Pre, we all took it in pretty good. And then we, uh, you know, Ferguson was a, a great, a great leader. He was. He was. A taskmaster. He drove me nuts. He accused me of a lot of things, but he brought out the best in me, and I thank him. And I, I think he drafted really well, leading into '79 and that culmination of a of a of a Stanley Cup finalist. Anyway, that's why we're going to talk to Ratso after, is because. Somewhere in between there, I'm not sure if it was 77 or 78, Sonny Werblin took over golf and Western that it was still at the same time. And this guy was, you know, he was the mentor to Joe Namath. He used to send me notes down into my locker room. Remember, we always played home games on Sunday and Wednesday and uh, practiced out in Long Beach. But when I got in on Wednesday, at about 4 o'clock usually is when I arrived pregame for the Wednesday games, I always found this little note in there. 
And it was always signed by either Mike Burke from the front office or Sonny Werblin. And they were always little business tips about, like, keep the guys going. You know, you're, you're saying the right things. You're doing the right things. And that was sort of like when Fergie was telling me, don't do that. and Don't do this. <laughs> but the front office... Sonny Werblin's telling me, get out more and do things and all that. So that was always, that was part of my nurturing. And uh, I passed it on to you when you came in too, man. Yes, Pat. And, and I was encouraged like you were from Sonny Werblin, just go out and have fun. Now take care of business on the ice, which was uh, what we all knew we had to do because if you're not winning, uh, it just, none of it works. So we concentrated hard on being the best that we could be on the ice, but we did have fun. And at that time was Studio 54 and uh, Page Six, New York Post, which is funny, Pat, that I am now working with the New York Post and, and it's gone full circle. So uh, with you, because of, um, I think you were very thankful for what New York gave you, you decided you wanted to give back. And so you started hockey in Harlem. Why don't you share with us your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, it was uh, it was kind of a natural. I, I, I became, you know, the breath of New York itself and it was it was it was it was my town, and I actually worked on Wall Street at a company, Bear Stearns, for four years uh, before my retirement. When I was in St. Louis, I would come back, and you know my trades and things like that. But I married a girl from Long Island, and uh, we came back to town. And the the funny thing with with playing for the Rangers, I was involved in. At, at one time, when upon my retirement, 21 different charities where, you know, when you're playing and making good bucks, you had the time in the summertime, like Joe Namath's March of Dimes, Shea Stadium, Extravaganza, there's the Kidney Foundation, there's all of these things I was helping out. But when I got a job on Wall Street and my wife was pregnant, you know, I, I was kind of conflicted. So I went to some of the senior guys there in my office and he said, well, what you got to do is you, you have to create your own charity, your own initiative. And that way you can say no to all of the other requests from the Kidney Foundation and March of Dimes. And, and that's what I did. So what I found was Public School 72 in Harlem. It was also a bit selfish, I admit it, because I got the prospect Seagram's Corporation, which was a classy Canadian corporation at the time, and the Trump Organization. I read an article in the New York Times one Sunday morning that Trump had taken over management of Woolman's Ice Skating Rink in Central Park and Lasker Rink. And it just dawned on me, if I get ice time there, I can have a program and I'll write CCM, all of the suppliers of our skates, gloves, and helmets, and I could introduce that through an after-school program that was already in existence and Seagram's was funding it to the tune of a million and a half dollars. And I asked them if they wanted to have a 14th after-school program. They had computer sciences and all kinds of things. And they asked me, well, what would the program be the content and the medium? I said, uh, skating and ice hockey. And they said, you're nuts, uh, but sure, go ahead. So we put ice hockey in Harlem together with 62 kids, came to Lasker Rink in January of 1986 when I was working on Wall Street. And since then, we got volunteers and we put a board together and uh, I brought the L.A. Kings and you were part of that day in 1989 on a cold January morning. We brought in the L.A. Kings and my buddy from my hometown, Wayne Gretzky, and we hit CNN and lots of other national and international news. And I got seven upstate prep schools that wrote me letters saying any boy or girl that gets out of the uh, grade school system in Harlem has a full ride at school upstate. And we took advantage of all of that. And we did 
little seminars and we got them, you know, as runners on the New York Stock Exchange because I had some, some friends there and I was working down there and we had a nice golf tournament and it all just seemed to kick in and we had the Canadian Society of New York that was, you know, proud of this. And again, it was uh, diversity and all of that maybe ahead of its time, but uh, we had it. We had a great program, and certain kids have all you know sort of passed through that, got married, got jobs on Wall Street and other places, got education, and uh, it's it's kind of a beacon for um, the inner city right now. I know that Ed Snyder in Philadelphia, same model. He had the money to build a rink for it, but and Disney in uh, in Los Angeles took the model for the inner city and. So I'm, I'm pretty proud of it, but I think it, it works for the inner city and that small little thing that grows in us as teammates that's just giving back to the community. And that's what I chose, and I'm pretty proud of it right now. We, we honored Bill Daly this year, actually, because the NHL has, has been very supportive in the last eight to ten years with the diversity and inclusion that needs to be done out here. Um, so, you know, it still exists. It's it's always a hard a hard thing, but it gives me, um, you know, something to do and something to concentrate on. And thanks for asking. Well, Pat, I, I, uh, I've been part of it for over 30 years, and I've always been, like you, proud of, to be part of something that's really special in a community that that's really been good to us. And so giving back has been so important for all of us as athletes because so much is given to us. So it's important It's important to give back. So having said that, I think uh, we're going to leave it there, and we're going to bring in Larry Sloman to kind of talk about that year, 1979. Also, my guest today is a very successful author who also has done some singing and acting. His writing, including spending time with the great Bob Dylan on his tour of 1975, to writing for Howard Stern, Mike Tyson, and many, many more. But more importantly, he got to hang out with a wild group of hockey players. The New York Rangers of 1979 run to the finals, which the book Thin Ice, A Season in Hell, was birthed. Welcome. My longtime friend, Larry Sloman. Grazzo, I need to ask you, this is a hockey show, but because you're so part of the New York Rangers and a special season, which was 79, I need to ask you, though, Bob Dylan, because he's so iconic. Can you describe, in a short version, what was like that season for you to have tour with him? The finals, uh, I wasn't uh, writing the book. Uh, you know, I wrote the book, Ten Ice, A Season in Hell, New York Rangers. That was about the next season. The, uh, but I was following, of course, I was a longtime Rangers fan. I was uh, my hero growing up with Andy Bassett. And I played hockey for years. I was the first captain of the uh, Queens College ice hockey squad. So, uh, you know, I loved the game. I loved the sport. I was also friends with uh, Kinky Friedman, who was a great, uh, had a group called uh, the Texas Jew Boys. And Kinky was a, a, an amazing singer songwriter and he was playing the residency at the Lone Star Cafe and one night I'm, I couldn't believe it I'm standing by the door and all of a sudden I see JV I think Gresh Hitch were you there that night yeah I'd like to interject a little bit Ratso, but yeah that's where I met my wife Debbie and I yeah. we actually we were on we were on page six at the right. New York Post and, uh, because she was in her uh, figure skating ice dancing show. And then from there, I thought it was the coolest place because I like the country and western and Katie Friedman's music. And uh, 
we started to uh, invite the teammates down, and uh, away we went. We all sort of rocked out there. Yeah, so I, I introduced everybody to Kinky. Everybody became friendly. Kinky actually uh, got involved in a, a documentary that was being made in Canada about, I don't know if it was about the Rangers or about or about just hockey. And uh, Kinky then uh, wrote a song for the documentary called Skating on Thin Ice. And ultimately, that's how I got the title from, for the book. So, you know, that season, 78, 79 season is when we started hanging out. And then, uh, of course, there was that great, great playoff run. I remember, uh, jump ahead a little bit, I, I remember the finals, uh, we were playing Montreal. Kinky was uh, staying with me at that time, and, and, and uh, he was in town, and he, Kinky would crash on my couch sometimes. So he was staying with me, so we, we watched. Uh, the first game together. And I'll never forget, Kinky was giving Montreal the one, the curse that he learned in Borneo. And every time <laughs> the Canadians would have the puck, Kinky would stick his tongue out and go, eh, eh, eh. <laughs> and he told me that was the Borneo, Borneo curse. Well, the first game, the Rangers won. Handle in Montreal, 4-1, to one, I think it was. And so I, I said, this is great. So uh, the second game, we start watching the game. I think after the first period, Kiki's given the curse. After the first period, the Rangers are up to nothing. Montreal. Kiki's just great. Unfortunately, Kiki had a lead to go back to Texas. He left after the first period, and that was the end of the Rangers' that series. Uh, and well, that's why we lost. I think it's attributed to, to the to the to the Borneo uh, curse not being uh, administered by Kiki, although. He taught me how to do it. So now, years later, 94, you know, the Rangers are doing well. They're going deep into the playoffs. Now they're in the finals. And I was telling Neil Smith that story. And I told him that story right before Game 7. And he, I swear to God, he said, Razzo, I want you to stand down behind the Vancouver goal. And I want you to give the Borneo curse to the Vancouver goaltender. And I literally, I did that. I stood there. I was giving the Borneo curse, and we won the cup. So I think Kiki um, had a hand in that. So, Roddy, Roddy, this is it here. You guys might remember some of this. But Gratso's right. We go to the cup final. With, uh, there was maybe a missing link, but Sonny Werbling got in. Because he called me to the office before I went home for the summer. And he said, listen, we want to document the 79-80 season, and I'm going to hire like a writer and a film crew. And we want to begin it coming up to your, you know, lakeside property because they'd already done an article on how I trained, running through the woods, cliffside jumping and uh, water skiing and all that kind of stuff. So I said, Sonny's asking, and Sonny gets what he asked for. So the fellow that came up was Ratso. He was the writer. And they came here to the cottage. Do you remember that, Ratso? You stayed yeah. here for a week or two, 10 days? Yeah, sure. That was the, the beginning of your book. And I yeah. apologize. So I never I never read the book because I had too many people telling me about it. But I did read the first uh, chapter, which you got right. <laughs> by the fun that we had up here. And I was in real good shape. What I want to know is, uh, um, going back to uh, the previous year when uh, went to the finals against Montreal, I, I know there was some controversy at the time. But what do you, what happened? You know, why why did um, the series take such a bad turn after that uh, um, second? You know, losing the second game after being ahead to nothing. Well, Ronnie, this is your show, but uh, it's always my perspective, and I've heard there's all kinds of guys with perspective. But to answer your question, so you know what? Every guy in the team was injured. I know my foot was sliced open; it had to be stitched before every game. 
because Mike Kozicki stepped on it in the Islanders series. JD had his injuries, and there wasn't a guy on the team. And that's what it, that's why winning the Stanley Cup is probably the you know, one of the toughest trophies to win. Like, and we, uh, yeah, besides a number of things, we we ran out of gas, and uh, Steve Shutt hit uh, Bunny Larock in the head and cut him open for a bunch of stitches, and Ken Dryden went back into the net. <laughs> that, that might have been our good. That might have been good luck in game two because he was ready to start. Right. Shot and some of the guys didn't uh, want to do it. But I, you know, hey, we were like we ran out of gas and we didn't have three more wins in it. I, I remember at the time there was some controversy about Shilo uh, not dressing Nicky Patillo, and that uh, you know that seemed to give the uh, Canadians more of a, you know of bravado. Kind of, you know, getting rough against the Rangers. Is that is there any truth to that? Probably a lot of truth, but you know what? My my philosophy always was don't live in the past. That was a decision that was made at the time. We had lots of things like you know, with uh, you know, Alfie Alfie came back, I, I believe, for the last game or two. Yeah, right. so it's a product of mathematics, and you know, at Shiro, uh, I wouldn't doubt any moves that he made that year. But looking back. Right. Nicky always was. Nicky always was uh, a force. You can't put your finger on one thing. It's too long ago, as far as I'm concerned. Right. <laughs> how about you, Diz? How about you, Diz? I think we understand the importance of the center position, centerman, and having a strong centerman. And losing Alfie made a big difference. When I go back, when I think about it, game one, we win that game one because a lot of it was adrenaline, emotion. Right? We go in there. I don't think they were expecting it. Game two, they had, they were better prepared. But also, we were playing without Alf Nielsen, and I think that made a difference. And when you really look at the big picture, bottom line, I think the better team won. <laughs> I mean, we had a good team, but the better oh, yeah, team yeah. won. And, and to a question of that I get asked often, I'm a young man, and I think part of the reason we make it there, we even make it there, is because of the character of the team. We had a lot of fun. We are like a group of brothers. So, Ratso, you followed us. You watched us. Do you think that exactly. perhaps we partied too hard where we ran out of steam? Well, I, I, I followed you the next year. I mean, that's when, you know, uh, that was the whole, you know, Ula La Sassoon and, and Sonny, you know, Worblin wanting everybody to be, you know, seen and get in the uh, newspaper and publicize the game. Well, there was a lot, a lot of partying the next year, studio before, and then after hours clubs and stuff like that. But um, I don't, um, you know, I didn't, uh, I, I wasn't, I went up to Montreal for the last game and, uh, and that was actually the first time I ever saw the Stanley Cup in person. And that was you know, an amazing sight. You know, that's the way I opened my uh, nice book. Just this kind of almost mystical scene. Of yeah, there's still, there's still a lot of people that want to know how you got on that plane up there. <laughs> I think Roger Bear had a lot to do with it because you were part of the team. But I think you're right, dude. Like, take. A lot of it was adrenaline, but I call it, it was, it was, there was so much chemistry. And that's why I started off in this podcast. It was like, there was four years of chemistry. It was building all the way along. Any running out of gas, I wasn't meaning the fact that, uh, that we enjoyed ourselves a lot. We did do that, but we all, every, every guy in the team had their own personality. They had their own sort of system of uh, operation and the whole bit. And I want to bring in like Sonny Werblin again, because he's the guy that in the summertime when I stayed there, we did the contract for the Hockey Sock Rock with Alan Stick and had that arranged for later in the summer when we flew out there, right? And also we did the deal with the Ula Lassa Sunjin 
that right. was all done in the summertime early. And Rathley, I was in the city and I put those things together and we committed guys and we all, we all got it done. That was like the fun thing that was, was going to keep us going and, and, and was different. And, uh, hey, the, we didn't win that year, but, um, uh, it sure was a lot of fun. And I just recently watched the Rolling Thunder on Netflix, right? So, uh, through, through this, through this virus thing when I was out in Salt Lake City where I live in the wintertime is, uh, is, is a great show. But I mean, you might be able to allude to the simple fact of all of those brilliant entertainers from Joni Mitchell to Dylan to these guys. It was, I think it was similar to like hanging out with Ronda Gay and Phil Esposito and Roger Bear, you know, Mario Miwa, you know, through those two, three years of, uh, of leading up to hey, we made it to the show and we made it to the cup and uh, we couldn't finish it off. But you know what? 98% of life is showing up. Or we showed up. Oh, yeah, for sure. And, and, and you know, I mean, my I, I look back fondly, you know, at that period because, you know, uh, of all the, you know, I, 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 I'm, I, I'm not I'm not by nature a sports writer. So, I, you know, I haven't been uh, that much involved with other, other sports. But it seems to me that hockey players were the most genuine most down to earth people. I mean, just even from my uh, interactions with, uh, you know, the, the Rangers, and then like we would be hanging out at Warren and Oretsky, and some, you know, football players might come in or whatever. Hockey players to me seem to be just, you know, delightful, delightful, you know, bunch of guys, and you know, not pretentious and just, you know, real fun to be with. And uh, yeah, I mean, that was a, a you know, a great experience, even though. Then you then you set him up with Mike McEwen, right? <laughs> Ratsy, you have never yeah, shared but, this with me. Yeah, oh yeah. I uh, I think it's in the book. I have to look, but I I think I put that in the book. I mean, uh, 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 yeah. I mean, it was just like you know the Rangers, you know, because it's going to the finals next year. The Rangers were the talk of the town. And then, you know, being encouraged to go out there and, you know, uh, you know, be in all the page six and stuff like that. I guess I'm going to have to read your book because I wasn't around for that. They traded me in November. So. Right. I know. Ratso, I need to ask what? you the title of your book, Thin Ice, right. I understand. But why Season of Hell? Because I well, had a whole lot of fun. It was nothing but <laughs> not even close to hell. <laughs> No, I know. And it was a tongue in cheek. You know, it's also from the uh, French uh, uh, poet Rambeau, who uh, uh, wrote a book of poetry called The Season in Hell. And uh, uh, so, yeah, no, it, I mean, results wise, it was a season in hell, but, uh, uh, you know, fun wise, it certainly wasn't a season in hell. It was like one of the great experiences of my life. It was so much fun just hanging out. I went on the road a bunch. 
but uh, you know, mostly we just hang out. We hung out in the city a lot. Ratsa, when you look back at that book years later, do you have any regrets about anything that you wrote, or do you feel like you missed out on certain things you could have added to the book? Were you completely satisfied with the how the book came out? Well, I was satisfied. Yeah, I mean, you know, I certainly didn't put in everything I could have in terms of you know, and, and so I, you know, yes, I mean, I, I was, I was satisfied uh, with the book. I, uh, uh, I know, I know there was this the big controversy. Uh, I guess there was. I think it was the Post, or either the Post or the Daily News that run excerpts from it, uh, where uh, it was revealed that they were calling uh, Dave Maloney Baby Brown. <laughs> and Maloney didn't like that too much. But, uh, you know, even even still, uh, years later, I mean, you know, he lightened up, and uh, his brother always, uh, his brother seemed to enjoy the book. So, but it was, you know, it was a very honest portrayal, I thought. Rat, so a question from uh, Twitter on that front from NYC The Mike. Were you aware of any players feeling betrayed based on their portrayal in the book? And how hard did you find it to walk a straight line between being friends and trying to write a book? No, I mean, I, you know, uh, I mean, I, I, you know, I stayed friendly uh, uh, to this day with, you know, a lot of the guys. I mean, Gresh and, and JB and, you know, so, I mean, I didn't uh, I didn't feel anybody was betrayed. I, I know at one point uh, uh, Roger Bale was ma- mad at me because uh, you know we, we I described the scene where we were practicing. I think it's the uh, Islanders facility, or or maybe even Coliseum before a game. It's just me and him on the ice, or maybe it was the thought. And uh, and he said some things, but he knew I was writing the book. And then he was mad. He you know he says I was I was telling you that off the record, but uh, you know other than that. Uh, you know, I, I don't really remember anybody feeling betrayed by, uh, by the book. And what was the second part of the question? How hard did you find it to walk a straight line between being friends and trying to write the book? Well, I mean, you know, everybody knew what I was doing. And everybody knew my modus operandi, which is the same for the Dylan book, which was I carried around a small Sony tape recorder. So I really taped everything. So, I, you know, most of that book, is basically on tape, so it's not like you know. At times, it could be like, for example, on the, the Dylan book. When the book was finished, I sent the book out to Dylan, who was in, in California, uh, cutting the film uh, Ronaldo and Clara that they made from 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 that book. And he he him and the, his the director Howard all wrote me back and said, "Oh, they loved it." Blah blah blah. I sent it also to Joni Mitchell, who I've gotten friendly, and I got a phone call like about six in the morning, and it was three o'clock in LA time. And Joni says, "Ratso, how could you have? How could you have me saying all these things in the book?" And I said, "Because you said that. <laughs> you know, you, you knew I was writing a book and taping this stuff." And uh, she was a little upset. And I said, "Go back and read the book again." And she read it again, and she called me back. She said, it's perfect, Tony. Don't, don't touch a word. It's, it's real. So yeah, I mean, uh, I didn't, uh, um, I didn't feel like, like I felt like because we had a relationship beforehand uh, that uh, um, I could be honest in the book, and uh, and everybody seemed to enjoy it. And the other question from NYC the Mike on Twitter was, how in the world was this book okayed, and what was the reaction from both players and management after its release, which you kind of just answered. And he also asked, do you think the stories in Thin Ice nixed any shot of a book like this happening again? 
Well, you know, it was immediately uh, compared to uh, Jim Bouton's book, All Four, the book about uh, the Yankees, because it was, you know, a really honest portrayal. And World Four, it was very controversial, too. This book, you know, I think was controversial, but I mean, it, it, it won like a lot of uh, awards. It was like uh, named to one of the 10 best hockey books ever uh, in some poem or some, some article in some Canadian press. I think that the, the reactions at the time, other than, you know, the, the stuff that was in the papers about, um, you know, the excerpts in the book that caused a little bit of, and I, and I, and I think maybe management uh, probably didn't like it as much as uh, some of the guys did, but, uh, you know, I think that the players realized that, you know, this was a really accurate portrayal of, of them and, uh, you know, really, you know, showed them in a, in a very good light. So uh, management may not like that because, you know, management doesn't like, uh, you know, uh, I mean, if, if, if look at historically, look at the, uh, the management of the garden now, they, you know, they try to censor, uh, you know, writers, uh, you know, especially with the people covering the mix. So, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I thought that the uh, the reaction overall was uh, terrific, and and over the years, it's you know kind of become like a classic book in hockey. So, Larry, when you think about that year in the players, can you share who would have been one or two of the players that you really enjoyed being around, guys that you really liked? Well, I mean, I think it's you know obviously you, Gresh, JD, Hitch, as long as he was there. I mean, uh, one, one, some some of the older guys were wary of. Like Carol Badney, <laughs> he didn't uh, he didn't want to talk to me too much. But uh, but the young guys, uh, you know, we really got along with, and uh, and uh, you know it was it was good. I mean, we had things that we shared, like you know the love for music, and uh, you know, uh, and there was uh, uh, you know, and and, um, uh, and whenever Kinky played, everybody would go down there. You know, basically, uh, it was it was the core. I mean, I you know, I loved uh, I really liked hanging around Murder. Murdoch, Donnie Murdoch, you know, he had a, a problem that he really couldn't handle the nightlife in New York. But, uh, you know, there were, you know, the, the, the usual suspects, uh, you know, you guys, you know, uh, and uh, JP and Fresh, those, those were guys that were closest to. Larry, I'm going to leave with uh, Pat Hickey. We're going to end this. Pat Hickey's going to ask, ask you one last thing because I know Pat is dying to ask you one more question. Okay. What, from uh, from Hitch to uh, Ratsko, you're talking about? Yes. Well, yeah, feed me. I, I just want to know if he remembers, because I hope he forgets the time that he was up here at the lake when I threw him in at midnight. <laughs> it was yeah. it was relieving. Well, Dugs, I'd like to I'd like I'd like to say just uh, ending this here. Like Ratso was part of, I believe, like in the you know you were talking about hockey starting up again. Nineteen seventy two was like let them do their thing. You did it before playing for Team Canada. You took me 18 days to get in shape. Yes, it doesn't all happen at once, but I think they're, they're going to be good. But Ratso and the New York Rangers, from the time you got there, I went there in 75, you went there in 77. We tore down a lot of barriers, not just the barriers in sports, but things that were going on in society. And we were very respectful for it. And I was... Uh, Pretty good, and I'm proud that Rasso got to document it. So. Yeah, and, and also I think it, it, um, you know one of the things that hockey players were in the forefront of, and now all sports figures emulate that, emulate that is charity and giving back to the community. 
and I know you guys you've done you know great work with uh, you know hockey and all. So uh, yep. um, you know, but uh, you know, I mean, that just showed you know to me that just shows the self selflessness and you know the the general good guy. <laughs> The fact that, well, the one that hockey player, one lesson that it taught us was like you know, all you need in life to succeed is the will to try. That's what ice hockey in Harlem was, and that's what the locker room and the Rangers uh, that we used to talk about is like. What are we going to do tonight against the Flyers, the Islanders, or the Kings? You know, and we all decided, we all agreed, agreed to agree, and we tried it. Right. Most of the time, it worked that year, and sometimes it didn't. But anyway, Ronnie, thank you very much for putting Russell and I together again. Fond memories. Yeah, really. Really, it's great. And the other thing we got to can't forget about is that you had all these great personalities, but then one of the greatest personalities of all was Fred Shiro, the coach. And I wrote, a, I wrote a piece for Playboy magazine about Shiro because, to me, he was such an innovative thinker and, and you know, such a just, you know, kind of would just, I mean, he, you know, he was into things like Silver mind control and the way he was, you know, trying to like. He told me he would be sitting, he'd be standing behind the players, and somebody would take a shot, and he would try to visualize it and, and actually will will the puck into that. So I mean, uh, you know, he was the character among all the other characters who were on the team. So it was really a, a you know an amazing bit to document. So Freddie came in like that year, like uh, after '78. Uh, the beginning of 79, 78, 79. And because of a draft pick and things like that, and however he got to be our coach was a blessing. But I remember him, he took us to a diner. And I've heard you talk about this. How did Dave Maloney get chosen for captain at the young age of 21 or something? So Freddie got us in with Mike Nicholas into a diner up in, uh, by the Tappan Zee Bridge there where we, where we practiced. And, uh, and he had, he had JD, Steve Vickers, Myself, we were kind of the younger conduit. Then he had Bad and Espo, and he announced to us, "We're going to make Dave Maloney the youngest captain ever in Ranger history. He'll be the captain, but you guys are the five captains because he wanted somebody that Ron Dugay, Don Murdoch, Mike McCune to talk to, like me or JD. You could go to them, and then we could go tell Phil where to go." <laughs> or Phil could t- come to us and tell tell DJ where to go. <laughs> He's got to straighten up. And that was Freddie's sort of, you know, top-down galaxy that he looked at. So he let us, you know, sort of manage ourselves. And that's delegation in business. And that was a smart thing that he did. I remember the 12th game of the season when he was first here, we just beat the Flyers like 5-2 at Madison Square Garden. He came in the room and he, he said one thing. He says, who wants to run practice on Monday, the optional day? And I put my hand up right away. He says, okay, Hickey's running and everybody pay attention to Hickey. And he walked out of the room. That's like putting us in charge. And I remember Phil and Dad, they all came over to me. No, no, I want to run it. I want to, we got to work on this. We got to work on that. And I said, don't worry, we'll work it out. And we worked it out. But Freddie, he just kind of did that mind melt with us and we all pulled together and he just delegated to us. So we were either going to get on with living or get on with dying and we just kept on living. And you mentioned, uh, and I was being remiss, when you asked me who I was friendly with and I I, I blanked, I didn't think of him, but uh, when you just mentioned uh, Steve Vickers, Sarge, Sarge was uh, a a terrific guy and I'm still in contact with him and his wife. And uh, so he definitely was, you know, one of the most... uh, fun guys to be around. 
for sure. Yeah, Larry and Pat, I know we can go through every player on that team. We're all so different and so unique. Uh, you had the French Canadians, you had the English, you had the big Espo, uh, and uh, and we just found a way. And a lot of it had to do is that we had made a decision that we were going to be a group of brothers. So whenever we went on a road, whenever we went out, we all went out together. We got to know each other, and we bonded that way, and we fought that way, and uh, we and and really. Freddie Shiro was the man, although he was at a distance, he was the guy that was kind of guiding us and allowing ourselves to guide us. And so it was so, when I think about that season, it was so fun and so unique that it was probably my favorite season. And and when I think about players that I'm closest to are those guys on that team. So it was a fun season. Ratso, we appreciate the fact that you recorded it. And for the listeners who have not read this book, you got to go out and find it. And Larry, where can they find your book? Nice. Well, it's out of print, unfortunately. But uh, uh, you can still get like used copies on uh, Amazon. Yeah, I, I would uh that's probably the only place I I, I tried to I tried to get it back in print, and in fact, uh, um, there was some talk about it. Uh, it. You know, it never came out in Canada because of, they were worried about different libel laws in Canada, and they were worried about invasion of privacy. And uh, you know, my 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 lawyer, uh, you know, got. It, it to be uh, published in the United States, but it never did come out in Canada. Right? I'd love to see a Canadian edition, uh, you know, of that book. Yeah, no, it was, a, it, it was a, a, an honor and, and a privilege to be uh, able to, uh, you know, one, of course, be on the road with Bob Dylan, and then Homer Seth, just as much fun being on the road with the Rangers. So that was a lot of fun. Well, thank you. Thank you for your time, Pat Hickey, Larry Sloman. for this week's edition of Up in the Blue Steeds. Thanks to Jake Brown for producing the show. Catch up all episodes by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter and in Instagram at RonDuguay10. Thanks for joining us, folks. We will chat with you all next week. Stay safe out there.